On this episode of AFTALK, we welcome back John Ostrower to fill us in on the progress of Boeing's new mid-market airplane. The 10,737 rolls off the production line, and the massive GE9X engine takes to the sky for the first time. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of AVTALK, a very special episode because it is our one year anniversary of AVTALK. We now know that we can do 27 episodes in a year. We, well, we can do 26, I guess. Mm, if you if you want to do math that way, fine. <laughs> I'm sorry to rain on your parade. So we, we did we did 26 episodes. This is our 27th episode, and, and we're recording it on the 14th of March, which is the anniversary on which we released episode one, which was looking back on it, I think we've come a long way. We still have no idea what we're doing. Yes, but now we have no idea what we're doing, and yeah, we still have no idea what we're doing, do we? Nope. No, okay. That's yeah. it. That's all, all we got. All right. Well, this was a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Close it up. We're done. This this actually is is a big episode. A lot has happened in the past couple of weeks. And let's start by saying that we're going to have John Ostrower back on the program because he knows every time we talk to him, I realize how little I actually know about anything. We know nothing. And how much he knows. And so we've asked him back and he agreed. I don't know why, but he agreed to come back on the program. And so we sit down and talked with him for, for a while. And we're going to talk with him about Boeing's new market airplane or middle of the market airplane. Middle of the market. Or uh, whatever else you want to call it. What will eventually become what we think is the 797. So John learned a lot about that this week. And so we we asked him on the program to come talk about it. So he's going to be on a little bit later. But some other Boeing news this week, the 10,000th 737 came off the production line. And you're you're not too happy about it, are no, you? No, no, no. I'm very happy. I, I have nothing against the 737. Nothing at all. However. However, I, I think this was a huge huge missed opportunity on the part of Southwest Airlines. So so Southwest Airlines is taking taking delivery of November 8717 Mike, which is a 737 Max 8, and it is the 10,000th 737 ever produced. They've built 10,000, well, probably more than 10,000 now, but that's number 10,000, and it looks like a 737 in Southwest livery. And I am thoroughly disappointed thoroughly disappointed yeah it, well there's no there's no special anything about it on the outside like you you would have no idea when it came from spirit aerospace is just a one of the green bodies as it was being transported from what kansas i think it is up to uh kansas up, up to, to seattle, seattle. It, it actually did have a little ten thousandth logo yeah. on it and so it had more celebratory whatever on it while it wasn't even actually built then when Southwest took delivery of it. There is no way to know looking at the airplane that is even the 9,000th 737 that was delivered to, do you know who offhand? Not, I wanted, I mean, I'll say Lion Air. No, the answer is China United Airlines okay. and they, for number 9,000, they put a little 9,000 logo between the R1 door and the flight deck windows. So even they did something for 9,000. Yeah, and, and what about 8,000? Let's uh, see. Norwegian go took 8,000. Oh, that went to United. Uh, did they do anything? I think even, mm, I don't think so. No, but 8,000 isn't exactly as tremendous as 10,000. Well, I mean, but 6,000 Norwegian did. Oh, uh, no, wait, I'm sorry. United did put a celebrating the 8,000 737 on the boarding door. So I, come yeah. on, you know. Come on, Southwest. I, I don't Come know. On. I feel like there's you know, a big mistake. There's time for them to fix it. When Lufthansa took their first A320neo, they didn't do a damn thing with it. No logo, no celebration, nothing. And I think they took a bit of heat about that. Yeah. And later down the road, they applied some stickers or new paint on it and said, hey, A320neo, yay. So Southwest can still salvage this egregious mistake. What I will assume is that they're going to add it you know, after they take delivery, that they're they're waiting to you know take delivery of the aircraft until they you know add a, a special touch to it. That that's what I'll delude myself into believing. But, but yes. let's set all that aside and let's just talk about the fact that that Boeing has built ten thousand seven three sevens. I'll be on two in the next week, and only you know 
a few more to go until you've ridden them all. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some others, uh, you know, in in the past, but ten thousand is a. It's a lot. I've never thought about this before, but there's got to be a, there's one person on the face of the planet who has flown the most seven thirty sevens. Not me. Well, I mean, not me either. I'll be flying in economy, so I don't want to fly that amount of seven thirty sevens. But somebody must have several thousand, probably. I, there's got to be somebody out there who you know, yeah. I, I don't know. That would be – I mean I don't know how we would find that out. But that would be amazing to, to find out. What, what what amazed me about all of this is the two kind of facts when, when I was looking into this is the, the first is that it took Boeing basically 40 years to build 5,000. And then it took them 12 years to build another 5,000. They turned it up to 11. And, and it's going to take them – I mean assuming they build another 5,000, which at this rate, who knows? But they're still increasing the production rate, which is crazy to me. That people want to buy them. They keep making yeah. them. And, and the other thing that, that well, I, I looked up the, the stats in our, in our database and we've tracked nearly 7,000 in the past 30 days. So nearly 70-ish percent yeah, are, are of still every 737 active, ever built active are still use. flying. And I mean the, the oldest one that you know, I was spot checking the other day was um, built in 1978. Who would that belong to? Uh, I believe it was Nolan Air. It, it was, it was up in Canada. It, it was uh, one of the um, – there's a, a couple operators in Canada that use 737-200s. Yeah, Air, Air Canadian North, Air North, I think. Yeah, so it was, it was one there. of those and, and it was built in I think March 1978. So I thought that was pretty cool. The – other kind of Boeing-related milestone is a General Electric milestone. Today, in fact, no, yesterday, the first flight of the GE-9X, which will fly in the Boeing 777X. And this thing is, is a freaking monster. I got uh, some pictures from GE Aviation today because I asked very, very nicely and they were nice enough to send me some. But they had to upgrade their 747-100 to a 400 and they ordered just to fit this damn thing under the wing. And the GE9X engine next to the traditional 747-400 engine makes it look like a toy. It is – it's absolutely ridiculous it, it, what this thing looks I like. Mean, there, a, a lot of the – I think GE posted, you know, first flight, yay. And, and I, I want to say 50% of the comments in reply to the tweet were like, is this Photoshop? Because it nope, just looks it's real. It just looks so huge. What what the, is it? One hundred and thirty. The diameter of this engine is one hundred and thirty four inches. To to context, the GE ninety one fifteen B, the the next biggest, is what one hundred and twenty eight inches. So I mean, it's you know, it's even bigger than that, and it just it looks massive. It's pretty ridiculous. I'm trying to look real quick what the fuselage diameter of the 737 is. They're about the same size, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, of the of the GE90, I want to say. So, I mean, it's almost you can almost fit the the 737 through the GE90. I don't know the GE9X. It's got to be you know, it's even bigger. Yeah, the the GE9X is indeed wider than a 737 fuselage. So you can fit a 737 inside of the GE9X engine, which is preposterous. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's so big. And and we'll put we'll put a, a a picture in the show notes so that you can all marvel along with us. As, and we swear there it's real. It's not photoshopped. No, I mean it's just fantastic. And you know, they they retired Earlier or late last year, they retired the the seven forty seven one hundred, which at the time was the the oldest seven forty seven in operation. And then the seven forty seven four hundred had to go undergo, as I understand it, they underwent mod, it underwent modification to be able to accept the the GE nine X, which, which is just it's crazy to me how how big yeah. and heavy this thing is. And it's not the only massive engine that's been tested on, on weird aircraft. For the A380, Airbus tested that engine on, um, I believe, an A340-300, which anyone, if anyone knows anything about that aircraft, those engines are particularly tiny. So anytime you see these engine test beds, it just doesn't look right. You know, the, all of the engine test beds kind of have this, you know, the weird quirks, like the Honeywell has the, uh, I don't even, the 75. You know, I don't even know what they call it, but the it's kind of like a protrusion 
out of the 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 right side of the the fuselage. Yeah, that thing just has like a pylon sticking yeah, out the, pylon. the fuselage um, that they they can mount you know engines to. So I mean that's the tests that they can do you know with with one end. It's really incredible. I still can't get over how big the thing is, but I'll you know I guess we can move on from there. We can indeed. So should we talk about? Some things that we talked about in previous episodes, and just kind of do a, a quick, quick update there. The one of the first was the preliminary report from the UA eleven seventy five event incident came out. That was the triple seven that shed a good chunk of its engine just outside Hawaii right, last month. Right, and I mean, not much to report because it's a preliminary report. So. All we really know is what happened, not why it happened or anything like that. But the 777 experienced an in-flight separation of a fan blade and the sub- subsequent loss of the inlet and fan cowls in the right engine. So the the kind of the, the beginning of the incident was an in-flight separation of the fan blade, which is when it initially happened, before we saw any pictures from the front, it just looked like it had lost a cowling. But the report kind of confirmed uh, what some of the photos that we saw afterwards showed that it was missing a fan blade so that's a preliminary report yeah. so, somebody commented i posted this and somebody commented on twitter you know, that's not you know that's not exciting or, or fun or anything like it's it's a preliminary ntsb report it's not supposed to be exciting right check back in, in 12 to 24 months and, and you'll get a whole lot more information so yeah that was um i thought that was a very interesting comment and, and i didn't know what to say about that should we take a quick break and then uh, bring in John? Yeah, it's time to get schooled on all things uh, middle market. There you go. So we will do that. We will take a quick break and we'll bring in John Ostrower to talk about Boeing's new market airplane. Stay with us. And we welcome back to the program John Ostrower. Aerospace journalist, formerly with CNN, Wall Street Journal, Flight Global, and just an all-around person who knows a lot about airplanes, and that's why we brought him back, because we've got a new airplane to talk about. John, welcome back to the program. Welcome back, John. Thank you for having me. The new airplane that we have to talk about is actually, at this point, called the new middle market airplane. John, can you tell us what this is all about? Sure. So the new middle market airplane is the remarkably dry aerospace industry acronym NMA for what will probably eventually become the Boeing 797, the first all new airplane since Boeing finished the 87 in uh, 2011. And it is going to occupy a space theoretically in between the 787-8 which is about 240-something passengers flying about 7,000 nautical miles. And the recently launched 737 MAX 10, which is about 230-something seats flying Transcon US routes. So there's a hole in between those two, two airplanes, and Boeing wants to fill it with the NMA. And ultimately, they are trying to figure out what the business case for that airplane is. What's the market for for it? Who who wants it? How do we build it? Where do we build it? And more importantly, how do we make our money back on uh, a new aircraft program in a profile that is radically different than how so 787 I, I went down? Like- the U- the big U.S. airlines are clamoring for this thing, and they have been for years. They all uh, American Delta, United, they all operate pretty sizable seven five seven fleets, but they're all aging. They're twenty twenty plus years old. Uh, a lot of them are actually quite old, and they're all really they want this replacement. So, what has taken Boeing so long to prove the use case? I guess. So this all kind of w- was really born from how do we replace the seven five seven. And that's a discussion that's been going on for a very, very, very long time. The 757 was sunsetted in the uh, early 2000s, mid-2000s after after 9-11, and demand really dried up for, for the airplane. And uh, that was a function of a few different things, but, but mostly uh, a lot of that was also Boeing's strong desire to build the 737NG backlog and, and really kind of bolster that that fleet while still having a ton of 757s in service. So the need for a, a, a clean replacement 
so to speak, a, a an airplane that could do the 757 mission in the same way that the 757 operated really wasn't that high. I mean, we saw, you know, what airlines wanted as far as seat count. You saw the 900ER. Now we see the MAX 9, and, which is going to be delivered uh, later in March for the first time. And we saw the MAX 10, which will be here in 2020. And so what ended up happening was Boeing goes and starts this conversation with, with airlines saying, hey, what do you need? It's like, and then what Boeing has always been remarkably good at is figuring out what customers want. And the problem is what Boeing has also been remarkably <laughs> remarkably bad at, depending on how you want to look at it, is also, also saying no to customers. <laughs> because when customers, you know, want, want the world, you tend to get features on an airplane that might be more expensive to develop. I, I would probably point to the bidet on the 787 and entry door um, floor warmers on the 87 also. I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of little things that, that, that will crop up in terms of, you know, kind of what the airlines want. That, you know, from a from a development cost perspective may make a customer very happy, but they tend to be very, very expensive when you talk about a massively integrated airplane. So you balance those two requirements. So what the NMA has become is not really a 757 replacement. It's actually more of a, a, an airplane that sits somewhere in between the seven. 6-7-200, the 200 also. So the kind of a mashup of of those airplanes, but with a range that isn't quite as far as the as the 767. Sorry, I say late model 767. Actually, just as a, as a really quick historical aside, I went back and looked at what the original range expectations were for the 767-200, and it effectively was New York to LA. It was a 25, 2600 nautical mile airplane. And it eventually grew to 6,000 nautical miles over time, just through incremental uh, updates and continuous improvement. So just it's kind of interesting when you think about where that airplane began and where where it ended up. So, But this is an airplane that, that sits theoretically, what Boeing has said publicly, 225 seats at six, uh, sorry, at 5,000 nautical miles. So that's about 10 hours of flying. But notionally, that would give you a lot of flexibility in terms of the U.S. to to Europe, North America to South America, deep in South America, Europe to Asia, Asia to Australia. So you see a lot of different route structures that are that can kind of be created or exploited around that. And not, not to mention the fact that you also have on the upper end. Uh, a larger NMA, which would be about 265, 268 seats in a two-class configuration, about 500 miles shorter. It's so 4,500 miles. So you get that would probably be the big transcon hauler, potentially, or you know your your Beijing to Shanghai or Guangzhou shuttle that really just needs to move a lot of people at, in a short distance. And whether or not that's is that five hours, is that you know is that eight, you know. That's obviously for the airlines to decide, but you know it's it's really congested Chinese routes. It's New York to L.A. It's well, I, I think you know we saw LaGuardia Twin Isle operations. I mean that's a that's a kind of a good example of 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 what we're notionally going to see this airplane do in terms of you know what its ability to go in and out of LaGuardia back and forth to to, to Florida and so on and so forth. So you can see this sort of you know large array of of routes being created or, or or being exploited I should say as a result of having an airplane that can do this kind of 757 very versatile mission but also long range with a with a significant passenger count and it really kind of it really is this hybrid between twin you know a, a you know a, a larger twin aisle aircraft and, and and kind of operations that are largely served by single aisle aircraft today. So it it really becomes a sort of mashup of different capabilities. So speaking of mashup, I'm taking a look at the, I guess, the diagram that you have up on, on your blog right now. And it kind of looks like a Frankenstein plane right now. You have the 7576777 windscreen. You have the 76200 small twin boarding doors, the, the 787 style windows, the tail cone of a 737 Max, and the wings look really like a 787. So it kind of seems like Boeing has just taken all the best parts from all its 
prior generation aircraft and, and thrown it together as one? That is, that's a good way to think about it. Uh, it's worth noting that, that while this, so just as far as where the origins of this diagram, and it is a Boeing created diagram and it, it's effectively a vehicle by which they're, they've used and are continue to use to, to speak to customers about what they're thinking. Uh, so, so it's, so it's not necessarily the, the final, it's definitely not the final form of the airplane. It's probably not even the interim form of the airplane, but it gives a sense of, of sort of a vehicle for discussion uh, around what, what the kind of enablers of efficiency might be. And what the notional the notional attributes of, of the airplane are. So it's more about the the pieces of this that give a, a clue rather than the entire shape of it. So everyone, you know, sort of like, oh, it's just the seven five seven. It looks like a seven five seven. Oh, that's so boring. We've done that. Oh, it's so generic. Okay, fine. Yes, people are going to react the way they're going to react. But at the same time, it's also not. It's worth taking a lot of it with a very large grain of salt. But it does tell us a lot about how Boeing is thinking about what this airplane is going to be. It definitely looks like something new. It's This blog post definitely changed my mind that it is not just a straight up 757 replacement or, or God forbid, an even larger 737 MAX. It truly is something unique and filling a gap that does not exist today. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the question is, you know, the, we're talking about an airplane that will be here in no, really no earlier than 2025, because a lot of it's paced by development on the engine side of it and what GE roles and Pratt can do and when they can do it. And so, so within that, a lot is going to happen between now and then. And a lot of the closure of the business case is dependent on establishing how just how big the market for an airplane this size really is. And one of the big factors, because we are, you know, still sitting here seven years to go, a lot of those factors come down to how many airplanes is Airbus going to produce in roughly in the, the lower end of this category, namely the A321neo, Neo LR, which is going to fill a lot of the, the market for this. And, you know, one customer put it to me this way. I said, there are going to be thousands of these things out there by the time this airplane shows up. So, you know, what is not only the addressable market, but what is the available market? Come 2025, and that's going to be an interesting question, because you know you've got a, a the replacement of a of the 757 fleet. You've got you've got older, you know 737 900 ERs that are going to be uh, need need replacing, and you know you see the dynamics shaping up here. But the timing of that and the size of that market is going to drive a lot of how Boeing approaches this. But I think I think the one thing you know while Boeing says, oh, you know we're not. We haven't made any decisions about this. We haven't made decisions about this. There is clearly a very, very large team at Boeing working on this. That is, there, you know, this is not a, a science experiment in the product development space. It is, this is very much, how do we make this work? And usually when Boeing tries, goes and tries to answer, how do we make this work? And which, by the way, is not a step they ever got to in 2011 when they were debating between replacing the 737 and and doing the max, it is a it is, it is a a fully formed unit that is trying to answer this question. And typically, when Boeing goes out and goes to say, "Hey, we want to answer a question," typically they do it. So it clearly this is at a, at, a, at an increasingly advanced stage where customers are are saying, "I want to be first. I want this. This is how I theoretically would use it. This is why it's attractive." And and then you get the engine engine guys in the mix and and you see things starting to take shape. So the existence of this image, the exist the 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 existence of 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 these type of features tell us that Boeing is thinking very 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 seriously about doing an all new airplane and beginning to take options off of the table, you know, not bringing back the 57, not rewinging the 67, not re-engineering the 67. You know, how do you, you know, again, how do you, how do you get to the, that end game? And this seems to be, you know, back to Boeing's DNA of wanting to do new airplanes. This is the, this is their next moonshot, despite having, you know, declared no more moonshots. They're back to the moonshot age. John, have, full force. you mentioned, you mentioned GE roles and Pratt and Whitney. Have they given any indication of their interest in, in, you know, compete, I mean, would there be some sort of competition? Would this be something that there's multiple engine options? And, and 
have they given any indication of what that engine might be? Would it be a you know a, a new engine, or are we looking at something incremental that would fit this flight profile? Well, so a lot of whether or not so it's going to have at least one engine, <laughs> at least one engine supply. We know that. that we know okay, that. That, that, so, that's fair. Yeah, that that we can say that we can say that definitively. So the question is, and, and we don't think. So everything that's out there suggests that there's not going to be three because customers don't really want that. Boeing doesn't want that complexity. So it's really between two and one. And the question between two and one really comes down to the size of the market. And again, it comes back to what's what's the addressable, what's the available size of the market, and you know how do the three major engine manufacturers answer that question? So Pratt so far has said we would do a, a scaled up GTF. And you know, looking at anywhere from what I understand to be around forty-five to as high as fifty thousand pounds of thrust, you know, GE would would do something through CFM with, and that would be essentially a um, you know a a hybrid of everything, all the technologies going into the GENX and all everything that's in the Leap and sort of a mashup of new technologies, pro, you know, likely conventional architecture. And yeah, that would be where they they would sort of bring in an evolved version for that that market. Rolls said they probably want to do a gear. They're almost certainly going to do a gear for this engine. But again, this is they're they're the pacing on this. You know, Boeing Boeing would love this thing ready by 2024, but it isn't going to go anywhere unless you have an engine. So that is going to be driving that's going to be driving the timelines on this. And the engine makers are are pretty darn uncomfortable with really anything before 2025 as far as a new centerline engine family and and what that could mean. So we kind of have an idea, sort of, of what Boeing wants to do, what they may do, what their business case may be. What do you see happening from Airbus? I can tell you it will be an interesting situation to watch unfold as far as how Airbus responds to this. But again, you know, we're talking about airplanes that are probably at at the minimum, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years out, and that's a that's a crazy that's a crazy thought sitting here in 2018. Yeah, we're talking a, a decade out, and and we haven't even taken into account what China might be doing or what Russia might be doing since we've talked about them in the past. They also have some similar, very interesting things coming out in that time frame. Absolutely, absolutely, and the in the CR nine two nine, which is the Chinese Russian collaboration, is effectively creating a three thirty three fifty seven eight seven category airplane, and whether it's composite, whether it's aluminum, that's not quite clear. I mean, the Comac Research and Development folks showed off a composite panel that they made that would theoretically be for the airplane, but no one's really sure whether or not that's going to be the final form because, you know, the reality is composites are really, really, really expensive. And that is that is still a big portion of why the 8.7 was expensive as it was and why the 350 is, is as expensive as it is. And from what I understand, it's about twice as expensive as aluminum based on the, at the same point. So, you know, the, the benefits have to outweigh, outweigh the, the costs here. And, and which also ultimately brings us back to the NMA, which is, is it composite? Is it aluminum? What's its shape? How do you make that work? And can you do it in aluminum? And, and, if, and can you do it in composite? So there are, there are a lot of interesting features of, of this airplane that are, that are going to test technologies that really are going to, you know, significantly shift how, if if they're successful, significantly shift how airplanes are are manufactured and 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 what the capabilities for airplane makers to really shape metal and composite in a way that that gets them what they want. Where do you think Boeing would even build this? So Renton is kind of maxed out with the seven three seven program. Could it be? I see what you yeah. did there. I see what you Get did it? there. Get it? Do you see them doing this possibly out in South Carolina or are sticking up in Everett? That's a great question. I, I think the one thing that's that's kind of clear at this point is that Boeing wants to make that decision a lot earlier than they usually do. Typically, they've launched a program and then sometime significantly at a, at a later point, not that much at a later point, but you know the, that where it's built and launching it 
have been increasingly tied. I mean, when, when the 777X launched, there was still an outstanding question about where the airplane was going to be built and where that wing was going to be built. And that didn't come until about the early 2014. But Boeing wanted them together. So so I think that was probably a good indication of how they're thinking about you know, the manufacturing of of their new airplanes. So I think we're probably, when we get a launch of this airplane, we're probably going to get an answer as to where it's going to be built. But realistically, you know, when you think about the the priorities that Boeing has identified as far as keeping the cost development cost of this airplane low, setting up a new greenfield site, or significantly building new manufacturing infrastructure at an existing site is probably not going to help the business case as far as the amount of money you're going to spend. So how you keep that as low as possible is going to be a combination of, well, notionally, a couple different things. What are the incentives you get from any given any given municipality or state to to build there? Or, you know, what is what do you do with existing infrastructure? And, you know, you've got 747 continuing on for for the time being as as a freighter with the help of of UPS. You've got the 87 occupying a a spot in Everett and heck, I I don't I don't get the sense that that Boeing wants to earmark uh, Renton for anything other than 737 MAX production right now because the pressure, at least notionally, is to go even higher than than 57 a month in 2019. So finding space for that is probably going to be the, the higher priority rather than bringing in a, a, a twin-aisle aircraft. So theoretically, it's really between Everett and St. Louis and Charleston. Some horse, some horse race they're in. So, you know, there are various permutations that have been discussed about where what what might happen, where that might go, but that's going to be a big question that's probably going to get answered in the not too distant future, depending on what individual state strategies are and what you know packages of incentives are assembled to to have uh, to have Boeing build their airplane there. So I, I want to take a step back because part of the conversation around the the new airplane that, that's interested me is the kind of push and pull between – and you mentioned earlier that Boeing tries to make customers happy sometimes to a fault with you know heated flooring and bidets and things like that. But but somewhere where it really matters is is the shape of the plane's – we'll call it belly. And, and that's been – you know. Uh, Julie Johnson at Bloomberg wrote a pretty good article on on detailing this a little bit, but I wanted to get into a discussion about why the shape of the aircraft, not just the wings, not just the engines, matters. And John, if, if you could kind of detail for us what the difference might be and, and why that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So notionally, the NMA is a twin-aisle aircraft. So twin-aisle aircraft historically are very expensive to build. They're expensive to build because they – at a really obvious point, they just require more material. The The cost per pound of the aircraft is just higher. It's not necessarily a clean, you know, if cost per pound on a single aisle is X, well, it's not a, some, you know, you just don't take that and multiply it by, you know, however much bigger the airplane is. I mean, you what you're like you size up like that. Everything gets heavier. Everything gets beefier. The the requirements are, are increased in terms of you know wing sizing and thrust and all the different pieces that come along with that. So when Boeing talks about this airplane, they talk about what their line is. Let's see if I can remember. It, it is so it's twin aisle comfort and single aisle economics, which is another way of saying, in practical terms, above the floor it would be a twin aisle aircraft, and below the floor it will be a single aisle aircraft capable of. You know, carrying a containerized containerized cargo and for bags like the 320 family. And so the problem with that is when the shape is a perfect oval, the way the pressure and the loads press on the outside of the aircraft, as has been explained to me, and I'll probably butcher this because I'm, again, not an engineer, is that it applies evenly against the bubble. The, the circular the circular shape of the fuselage. And we've seen what's called a double bubble fuselage, which is a co- very, very common in the industry. We saw it, you know, most most ex- in most extreme way on the Strata Cruiser with that, you know, huge, you know, bulbous upper deck and a, and a lower lower deck that it's that's a that's another bubble. But again, as long as the floor is at the, the meeting point of those two, 
the 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 loads on the the frames and the fuselage skin are all even. But the problem is to do that for an NMA, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work because having a a shape uh, that is think of it like a like a like a seashell like a a seashell with the kind of a, a lower a smaller bottom portion and a big bulbous top portion. Well. You're not. You're essentially dealing with an ovoid shape at that point, and you're getting. It's not a double bubble anymore, and the way the loads and the pressures and the and the, and all the stresses are are distributed along the lower lobe, which isn't necessarily a a bubble. That's when it really, really gets challenging, and you get an uneven dis- distribution of the loads, and that can be remarkably challenging as far as dealing with the stress on the airplane and, and how and how that's all distributed. That's a remarkably, probably crude way of uh, of describing it, but it's it's ultimately what Boeing is trying to solve here. But Boeing, as far as I can, as far as the way that they talk about it, they believe they've figured that out. So what you get is this sort of one point five x solution, which says, well, we've got this this twin-aisle upper deck, but we've got this lower deck that isn't essentially a perfect mirror to the upper deck, so we're not carrying all that extra weight, so we can uh, get the scaled economics of a single-aisle airplane for, for airlines. I mean, certainly the manufacturing processes that come with this are something that Boeing says that they've, they have figured out. That they haven't said what those are. They haven't. They've only just said they've got it figured out. So that's their secret sauce right now. But as far as the that push and pull from an airline perspective, this is what Julie talked about in her article, which was which was excellent. Uh, the idea that underneath the floor, and this comes back to my earlier point about not being able to say no to airlines, that carriers in Asia want to carry ten tons of cargo in the belly, and U.S. airlines and European airlines want to carry five tons of cargo in the belly. To some extent, that will dictate the shape of, of, of what goes on underneath the floor. However, volumetrically, five tons and 10 tons can take, take very different shapes. So I think a lot of the discussion around this is how do you size the wing? How do you size the thrust of the engine to be able to efficiently carry five or 10 tons of cargo? And what do you optimize around? And the, the push-pull is sort of if uh, A321... With ninety-seven, with a ninety-seven-ton maximum takeoff weight, so a three twenty-one LR, can carry five tons of cargo. Wouldn't you want a product that differentiates itself at ten tons of cargo? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe it's no. But again, it comes back to the the ability of of, of not letting this creep up into the small seven eight seven category when you've got airlines like Norwegian who are ready to buy a bunch of them saying, well, you know, cargo doesn't really matter. But for the Asian airlines, the priorities are different. So it's really going to be about how Boeing balances that re- that requirement, but also not letting the mission creep up to a point where every time you add more capability to the airplane, you're also adding more cost. And being able to say, no, this airplane is this, and if you want an airplane that can carry a lot of cargo, we have a 787 for you, and say, you know, we've got a product there, but this is not that. So that might artificially limit the the size of the market, but is there a trade-off with how much it's going to cost and the pace of that return? So again, you know, I don't I don't envy Boeing. I mean, but this is the stuff that they they love doing. They love figuring out how to make new airplanes and their business models work. As uncomfortable as that that can be sometimes, this is what fundamentally they love doing and this is in their DNA. I mean, creating new high-performance aircraft is what Boeing loves to do. It's expensive and it's getting more expensive, which is a, a totally separate strategic discussion about the future of the aerospace industry. But fundamentally, Boeing right now is in their element as far as where they like to be thinking about new products. I think that we should leave it there because anything anything else we discuss is just going to be so far into the future that I'm not <laughs> sure it's worth getting so far into the weeds. But I, I think we've got a good a good basis for kind of understanding the news that comes after this. And, and John, I know you're going to be following this 
I think very closely is putting it lightly. But if there is, you know, more firm news, we, we'd love to have you back to to discuss where the airplane's headed and and what it's going to maybe look like in its intermediate stage. I would love that. Count me in. John, thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking with John Ostrauer. You can find him on Twitter at John Ostrauer, J-O-N-O-S-T-R-O-W-E-R. And JohnOstrauer.com is his blog. Go check out. We'll put a link in the show notes to check out his fantastic article complete with annotated diagrams of the new NMA concept. And John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, John. And we are back from learning more than I ever thought we could learn about Boeing's new market airplane. I learned more than anyone should learn at this stage <laughs> because we still don't know much, do we? No, it, it, it's crazy to to think that you know these things. We're we're talking about something now. And then in what seven eight years we'll see it fly for the first time. And I mean, give or take. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll know a lot between then and now. But we're I think we've talked about this with John in the past. But we're kind of in that drought stage where nothing new is going to be taken to the sky anytime soon. So, as he also said today, don't think about how old you'll be by the time we get. Uh, this middle market aircraft in in the air because you won't like the math you do. Yeah, well, we'll we'll leave that one just as it is. Let's discuss a few recent crashes because there there have been a couple in the past couple of weeks that that went into. Let's see, we had the the Challenger in in Iran uh, that was flying from Dubai up to. Turkey. There was the Dash 8 in Nepal that was trying to land in Kathmandu. And then there was the the tourist helicopter in New York, all within the past couple of weeks. And and so it's... Uh, I know that statistically, this year is no different than, than any other year and, and things are not... But does it feel different? I, I don't know. Yeah. I okay. mean, the last year, I don't think we talked about this topic once, period. Because it, it did not happen. And I think every episode this year so far, we've had to do that, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and the the one thing that, that I did want to bring up, and we brought this up last episode, I, I think as well, is the MLAT tracking. Because for each of these, we weren't able to to calculate position information because it's MLAT and because of coverage issues and, you know, coverage is difficult. Uh, MLAT coverage is difficult in in Iran at this point. It's getting better. It's something that we're actively working on. MLAT coverage in, in Nepal is difficult, not for lack of receivers, which we have quite a few. And so high level altitude, high level altitude MLAT coverage is actually quite good. It's just that the mountains are so big and the valleys are so low that the radio signals, well, don't play well with the mountains. And the, the helicopter issue was kind of a very similar issue because of the canyons that's created by the skyscrapers in, in New York. So not able to calculate a, a position value, but still receiving altitude data, which can you know tell, tell a pretty important story. In, in a number of cases, like with the, the case of the, the Dash 8 in Nepal, able to tell that it, you know, a second attempt was made at, at landing, you know, a, a climb in altitude and then, and then a decrease in altitude towards, uh, towards the airport again, things like that. So it, it's, we're not getting you know, as much information as we'd like from, from certain aircraft, but the conversion globally towards ADSB is, is certainly helping with those issues. Yeah, seeing more and more helicopters in the New York City area that actually do have ADSB. And this, the helicopter that went down wasn't actually all that old. It was five years old, I believe. But I don't think it had ADSB installed. I, I can double check, but no, I, I don't think it did. But yeah, no. So I mean, it's one of the things where you know ADSB is providing a lot of a lot more information than the older Modest transponders, especially in events like this. Let's turn our attention to Turkey. Ooh, Turkey. Their like Turkey. Turkish Airlines ordered a bunch of more planes. Or, oh, or I thought we were talking about Turkey, Turkey. Well, we, I mean, I suppose we could discuss. Talking about, talking about Turkish, okay. Turkish, yes. 
They ordered more more airplanes well, for the new airport that's opening soon, I guess. They kind of ordered more airplanes. Kind of. They um, topped up some other orders, I believe, and firmed up some orders for 25 Airbus A350-900s and another 25 for the Boeing 787-9er. Well, there you go then. They're taking delivery between 2019 and 2023, so playing the long game here, but got to fill up the gates at that new airport with something. When does that airport open? Soon, I think. Are we going? No. Okay. Wait, are Americans allowed back in, in Turkey I, now? I think, I think we're back allowed back in, but we can double oh, check. That's good. Ah, okay, so it's soon. Opened, um, construction started May 2015, uh, October 2018. Is the commercial operations start date, but <laughs> with all new airports, take that with a grain of salt because uh, well, <coughs> Berlin. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, maybe October twenty eighteen. Maybe if the, you know if things go Berlin, maybe sometime never. If so. things go Berlin, I love it. Yeah, that that stupid airport might never open. I'm bringing that one into uh, into a phrase. Well, Wikipedia says, uh, highest of all sources here, as of March 2018, around 80% of the construction was complete. Uh, not great plan. Test operations did not take place by February 26th as planned. So who, who knows? Who knows? So let's stick with Berlin, kind of, in polling of Berlin. The AN-225 is going to fly again soon, maybe. We think. Can it please come to the U.S.? It is not coming to the U.S. So whatever, so, probably. I mean, we we just need to start a mining company and order some giant piece of mining equipment and have it delivered to it. you know JFK or something. So you get on that and, and get back to me when it's done. What what would I mine for in New York? We don't we don't have much here. Subway tokens. Oh yeah, okay, I can do that. I, I live right on top of the subway, so there why you not? Go. Problem solved. So the the plan was for the AN two two five to go to Berlin, which is how I managed that segue somehow. That plan got changed. It's now going to go to to Leipzig, then to Ankara and Daman in Saudi Arabia, and drop off whatever it's carrying. I'm not sure that was supposed to happen the twenty seventh of March. It looks like that's changing. We're not sure what the exact schedule is yet, but stay tuned because it looks like it's going to fly and it looks like it's going to fly soon. And it's always amazing to watch that thing just, I don't know, do its thing. And if anyone's forgotten, this is uh, the gigantic turbo, the, the world's largest turboprop. No, aircraft. no, this is, is the 225. This is oh, the this 225. Is, yeah, this is the Mirror. This is the, the big one, the, the oh, biggest is, one. You can tell how, clear, how uh, well I'm paying attention. <laughs> I always appreciate that. Yeah. No, the, well, that, the that AN... does come to the U.S. every now and then. Yeah, it does. It does. I thought we were talking about the uh, what's it called? The AN the two 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 two. Yeah, which, that which thing. is the the world's largest turboprop, which will probably never come to the U.S. unless you politely request that it does so uh, and and pay for it. So I mean, you know, we we could start a you know Kickstarter Kickstarter you know, yeah something to. I don't know how many people would One pay into that. One giant turboprop, please. Yeah, bring it over empty. Let us take some pictures, take some video, and, and head home. Done. Oh, well. But yeah, so the, the, the AN-225, it's the six-engined behemoth, uh, which was originally designed to carry the, the Soviet space uh, shuttle. Um, and and now carries um, well basically large Stuff. mining equipment. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like every every time we know what's inside of it, it's mining equipment. It's generators and mining equipment. Yeah. Stuff that's extremely heavy and extremely long, and and needs you know a a giant airplane to move it around. But um, it will hopefully fly at the end of the month. We'll keep you posted. We've got a blog post going that's uh, we're updating with the schedule as as it is known to us, and hopefully we'll have more information rather soon about when it's actually going to fly and, and to confirm up the airports and things like that. Before we go, we should do a few very quick things, such as wish TAP Portugal a happy 73rd birthday, because TAP is Jason's favorite airline. That is incorrect. Very wrong. All you ever do is talk about how much you love tap. I, I, I don't. I think you're lying. <laughs> for those Not who, for those who don't know, we'll put 
I, I'll link to something. There's but, nothing to link to. Uh, Jason hates tap. I don't hate them. They okay. just screwed me over with, you know, no remorse or apology. No, no, uh, no big deal. Jason dislikes them. I do. And the other thing is um, nope. we listen to your feedback. When you email us, we listen. And a good handful of people emailed us about our misquotation of Qantas's plans for its 787s. Jason, you privately defended yourself to me, and, and I want to give you the opportunity to publicly say that you were right, even though we were both wrong. That sounds like something that, that would happen to us, yes. But the, the 787 is coming to JFK eventually once they move to Americans Terminal 8 in the following months. So we will get to see that fancy new livery out here in New York. If it comes during daylight hours, that would be wonderful. I think it does sometime, some parts of the year, but not always. But no more 747s in the near future for us at JFK with Qantas. So, so we, we, were, we were wrong. Qantas is bringing the, the 787 to, to the U.S. and then on to, you know, through, through the gateway in Los Angeles and then on to, on to New York. So Jason will have a chance to see it. I won't unless they magically introduce a, a, a Sydney or, or Melbourne, Chicago route, which... I'm sure it'll snow at JFK one day and it'll one divert day. to Chicago. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's possible. But that, that's pretty much my only chance of, of seeing it outside of doing some traveling. So maybe we'll have to, to figure out a way to, to do that. That is all, all of the corrections we have, thankfully, from the last episode. We're light on corrections this time. That's good. Not bad, huh? If we said anything in this episode... That is wrong, which is entirely possible. Probably let us know, even. Probably even. Let us know at podcast at fr24.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you liked what you heard, email us or go on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps other people find the podcast. And we like talking to more people so that more people can find the podcast and, and learn a little bit about aviation every couple of weeks. We like talking about it, and we hope you like listening about it. If there's anything you want to hear about, also drop us a note, podcast at fr24.com. Our glossary series continues next time. Captain Ken Hoke will fill us in on RVSM airspace. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that in our I next episode. I still don't know episode. what that one is, and I've, I've even already got the, the debrief on it. Well, then, then you'll just have to listen to the episode, and you'll learn something. You know that's not going to happen. All right. Episode 27, we've done a full year of these, and we're just going to keep going until someone takes the mics away from us. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Urbanowitz, and sincerely thank you for a year of putting up with our nonsense. <laughs> and here's to more nonsense. <laughs> <laughs>